So Carrie and I are at the Aventura Mall a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we're towards the back part of the mall where uh, like the food court area is, and so we walk out, and uh, you know there's a, like some bus stops there and all of that, and I uh, we're walking out, and I decide to lay on one of the benches, and uh, she gives me this look like, what are you doing? And I say, well, it's just been a while since I've laid on this bench. And she said, well, I don't remember you ever laying on that bench. I said, well, that's because you didn't know me the first time I laid on this bench. I've actually slept on this bench. And that's when she she was really intrigued at that moment. And she's like, well, why did you sleep on on this bench? And I said, well, um, I wanted to go to this concert and I didn't have a ride. And uh, she said, oh, all right, I'm, I'm listening still. And I said, so here's what happened, is that I lived up in Coral Springs in North Broward at the time. And so what I ended up doing was, I said, Here, here's what happened, is that I took the bus, uh, me and a couple of my friends, we took the bus from Coral Springs down to Hollywood Fashion Center, if you remember the Hollywood Fashion Mall. From Hollywood Fashion Mall, we took the bus to Aventura Mall. From Aventura Mall, we took the bus all the way down to Miami Beach to go to the Cameo Theater to go to the concert we were going to. So then, So we did that. Then afterwards, <coughs> we we so we we went we saw the show and then we hopped back on the bus. Remember, it's about midnight, and we were only able to get back to Aventura before the buses stopped running at one o'clock. And so I said, that's why we slept on the on the that I slept on that bench till six a.m. when the buses started running again, and then I hopped back on, took the bus to the. Uh, Hollywood Fashion Mall, and then all the way back to Coral Springs, and my parents were never any the wiser as to where I was. And then, now, after I tell my wife this story, and I'm sitting on this, and my daughter can hear me as well, uh, she asked the question, now, this is all I want to know. Why? I mean, why would you, I mean, like, why would you sleep on a a bus bench for the sake of, of a concert? And I I mean, I didn't really have a very good answer, but I just said, honey, because rock and roll demanded it. That's pretty much, that's all I got. Rock and roll demanded it. And, uh, you know, really, if you want to boil it down even more, it said I was just that committed. Because there's something that happens uh, in us when we decide to get committed to something that causes us to do things that are extreme. And, you know, those commitments, whatever it is that we're committed to, form and shape the people that we are and the people that we eventually become. Because, you know, right now, someone could look at you or look at me and know who it is that we are based on what it is that we're committed to. In fact, if you look at your left hand and there's a wedding ring on your left hand, that's something that you've committed to. You've committed to uh, another person to spend the rest of your life with them, to love them, to be faithful to them and, and all of that. And so that's that's shaping who you are. It's shaping who it is that you're going to become. Uh, if you looked at my fingers, you know what you'd find? You'd find calluses on my fingers. Why? Because when I started playing guitar, I played until my fingers blistered and bled. And it, now they've, they, I've got these kind of permanent calluses, and, and that's what happens. There's a commitment that I made. Uh, about two weeks ago, I'm walking out of the gym that I go to, and there's this lady parked in the, in the front spot. And uh, she doesn't look well because the door's open, and um, she's kind of like hanging out to the side. And just, I don't know why I have this kind of luck, but like right as I'm walking by, maybe she just saw me and this is what the, she just had this feeling. But she's standing there and I kind of make eye contact with her as I'm walking by and she goes, and she just pukes in the parking lot like, and it wasn't just like a normal puke. I mean, it was like chunky puke. Hey, listen, you want, I'm here to tell the truth. 
So I got to tell you the truth. Anyway, and I remember thinking of that and I'm like, man, working out until you puke, that's commitment. You know, I mean, that, that, that's really commitment. And, you know, the thing is this, what I've learned is that nothing happens until somebody gets committed. You see, good intentions don't turn a marriage around. Good intentions don't change our lives. It's only when someone gets committed that hard decisions are made, that reality checks take place, and that lives get ignited for God. Last week, we kicked off a series, uh, many of you were here, some of you weren't, that we're called Fuel, the factors that ignite faith. And the factor that we're going to talk about today is this factor of commitment. You see, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, his protege, his son in the faith, this young pastor, this mentor, uh, speaking to the the mentee, the one that that he's teaching, and he's giving him his final words. And last week we talked about in chapter 1 how he's talking to him about what is it that ignites faith. And he talked about that the gifts that God has placed in us. When we develop our gifts and discover our gifts and recognize why God's given us our gifts and put those gifts into play and get in the game with our gifts, you know what happens? That our faith gets ignited and our faith gets fueled. But then there's something else that happens that he wants to talk to Timothy about and and in turn talk to us about, is that there's something that happens when we get really, really committed to saying not just giving it lip service, but giving it our whole lives, that something else takes place. That our commitment then fuels our faith as well if we get committed to the Lord and committed to our faith. Why is it imperative that we be committed? Because if you're not aware, God pays special attentions to to those who are fully and wholeheartedly committed to him. In fact, in Proverbs chapter two, it says this. God gives out wisdom free in plain spoken is plain spoken in, in knowledge and understanding. He is a rich mind of common sense for those who live well, a personal bodyguard to the candid and sincere. He keeps his eye on all those who live honestly and pays special attention to his loyally committed ones. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this chapter and what we're going to look at is three ways that Paul tells Timothy to be committed. Three ways that he tells us how we can be committed to the Lord and to our faith and live a life of commitment. And here's where we begin in chapter two, starting in verse one. It says, you, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things that you've heard from me among many witnesses. Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. If you pause there and give me your attention, what's the first way? What's this first way that God wants me to be committed to him? Here's what it is. That God wants me to be committed to faithfulness. The first way that we're committed is being committed to being faithful to the Lord. And that's why God, Paul, writing to Timothy, gives us four examples of people who are very, very committed and the reasons as to why they are committed. In fact, in your notes, if you want to jot these down, the first one is this of these four people known for their commitment. The first is this, the teacher. That's why he says uh, these things that you've learned from me, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, I don't know about how your mind works, but I'm also always thinking kind of in pictures. And so I think about, like, who's a faithful teacher? I came up with this guy who I thought was a faithful teacher, uh, Mr. Carter. 
you know, I, I, how many of you watched Mr. Welcome Back, Connor? Oh, that's great. I thought for sure that, I mean, the second service, nobody's going to know who that is, but um, <coughs> apparently we're all a little older here, uh, which is good. <clears throat> I had a meeting this week. This is totally unrelated. I'm watching my clock. And um, it was about, um, you know, people being on, like, Facebook. How many of you are on Facebook? Can I ask you that question? Oh, look at that. That's great. Look at that. And so someone was saying to me about Facebook, and he's a young guy, and he's you know, talking about like that 18 to 24 group, and he's like, you know, they're all on Facebook. And then he says this, and he says, you know, he says, even people your age are on Facebook. And I thought to him, I'm smiling, and I'm like, you know, I could kill you with my bare hands right now. Uh, but I just smiled. Anyway, um, so the teacher, now why is the teacher a, a picture of commitment? Because the teacher's responsibility is simply to pass on that which he knows to his students. And you know a student has learned uh, when that student is able to now in turn teach others. And that's the level of commitment that he wants. Not just that you share the information, but that the student so knows the information that he's able to now turn and be able to teach that to others. He also references another person, the soldier. Now, what, what, once again, I started thinking through what's a good picture of a soldier. And here's... Here's a good group. Uh, the guys from MASH. Anybody, who watched MASH? Anybody? Now, this is going to be a light group. All right. Um, I did watch MASH a little bit. I was a little young for, uh, for, for MASH. But um, anyway, now the thing is, you kind of know the idea of the story. But there's, there's one guy in particular. Let me see the next slide. Um, now, this is uh, Colonel Klinger, or Corporal Klinger, I should say. Now, if you know the idea behind the show... Klinger was the guy that um, he would dress in all these crazy outfits because he was trying to, to have the army say that he was crazy and send him home. And that is the, the exact opposite of what Paul is saying. And we can please that scary picture. We can take it off, please. Um, now, what happens is this. The soldier's commitment. Now, think about what he says in verse three. He says, therefore, you must endure hardship as a good soldier. And the idea is, is that a soldier's commitment is being able to live in difficult circumstances and put his life on the line for his country. And so, and that's why the idea of the show is this person did not want to live that, did not want to live that life of commitment and said, listen, I'm just trying to get out of here. He goes on uh, in verse 4 and he says, um, or pardon me, in verse 5, he talks about an athlete. That's the third one. I started thinking about who's, who's an athlete that we could... Uh, realize, and here, here's one, one of my favorites. Now, this is Rocky, but this is not just any Rocky. This is Rocky Three, which is my favorite of all the movies, because this is the one that, of course, has Clubber Lang, Mr. T, in it. Um, but here's the thing that's interesting about this, and I think this is why it's a good picture. If you remember this, you know, he, he becomes the champ at the end of Rocky Two. And by the way, if you haven't seen Rocky Two, that was a spoiler. Um, but anyway, he becomes the champ. And then, if you remember, if you've, how many of you have seen Rocky Three? Can I ask that? Look at that. Uh, some of you have homework to do. Uh, You've got to watch all th- three. Uh, and then you have Rocky Four, which is like Rocky in outer space or something. Um, but anyway, what happens is this, is that Rocky doesn't start, he, 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 or he stops really being committed to working out. He stops being committed to being the best, and he ends up losing. And it's only when he really gets committed to it that he wins. By the way, I guess that's another spoiler. Um, But the idea of the athlete is this, that they labor and they train tirelessly to win, but it has to be according to the rules. And then fourthly, he mentions the farmer. He says the hardworking farmer must be the first to partake of the crops. I started thinking about a farmer who was faithful, and I've got these guys. Uh, 
The Beverly Hillbillies. How many of you watch? Can I just ask that? How many of you watch that? Wow, that's surprising. That's surprising. I, this was, I only saw this a few times. And once again, I'm very young. Um, but that's why. <coughs> but, you know, once again, you understand the story of these guys. They were, you know, Jed was out. Out for some, you know, out for some food, and out from the ground came some bubbling crude, right? Oil, black gold, Texas tea. All right, so that is. Um, and but the idea is this: is that the hardworking farmer labors and labors and labors, and he sows so that he might be able to reap. Now, the thing that's amazing about a farmer is that a farmer sows, and it's not like he reaps the next day. In fact, a farmer sows and he doesn't see anything. He sows and he sows and he sows and he just keeps working tirelessly, being faithful and being committed for what? For the hope and the knowledge that if I'm faithful now, that I will be able to reap the harvest that I want in the future. And so we have all of these illustrations and what do they have in common? And what they all have in common is that each of these people have to live a certain way, have to live a certain life of discipline to be found faithful. The teacher has to teach effectively. The soldier has to follow orders. Athletes have to play by the rules. And the farmer has to work the ground incessantly and diligently to be able to reap a harvest. You see, a commitment to faithfulness, it ignites our faith because God's nature is one of faithfulness. And to follow him is to become more faithful because that's who he is. In fact, Paul would go on in verse 8 of 2 Timothy. It's in your notes that we gave you. He says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect that I might also obtain the salvation, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying. For if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Now, um, one of the places I really want to go to, if you give me your attention for a second, uh, one of the places I really want to go to is, uh, is Yosemite uh, National Park. And the reason I want to go there is I want to see Old Faithful. If you have a picture of Old Faithful here. Uh, now, this is... Uh, a, a, this, this geyser, and this is what's amazing about this geyser, is that um, why it's called Old Faithful is that it goes off every 92 minutes. And it, it's something, it, it, it blows up something like, I don't know, 2,500 gallons or more of, uh, of water. And, um, and it, it's really an incredible thing. And um, now what's, what's amazing about this is that it goes off, like I said, every 92 minutes. But what can happen is, is that we can, you see all the people that are lined up, right? They're all there waiting for it. Now they experience it. It's going off. But you know what can happen? Could you imagine somebody standing there for, they don't really know. They just say, hey, it goes off. And then they stand there for, you know, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes, an hour. Like an hour 15. They're like, is this thing ever going to go off? And they say, you know what? I don't really think this thing is going to go off. I'm going to the gift shop. And so they end up they end up walking over to the gift shop to buy very poorly made, very overly priced things. And and you know what happens? Now, does their lack of faith in this thing going off every 92 minutes affect the fact that Old Faithful is going to go off every 92 minutes? No. It's going to go off every 92 minutes whether you're there or we're there or someone's there to see it or not. It just happens. The only thing that changes is my ability to experience 
the faithfulness, but not whether it's actually going to take place or not. And that's the thing that's so important for us, like in our relationship with God. You see that I love that passage where it says, if we aren't, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. So even if when, as I say, as, as we're saying, and that's why it's so important that our lack of faithfulness at times does not change who God is. The only thing that changes is our our ability to experience God's faithfulness when he's faithful, if we're faithful to him, because experiencing his faithfulness is what fuels our faith. Now, here's here's what I mean. Uh, God, one of the promises that we have as Christians is that God promises to honor the believer and bless the believer who honors him with their finances. Now, you can decide or not agree, whatever. That's just what the Bible says. That's the promise according to the Bible. But some people have never experienced that blessing, have never experienced God's financial faithfulness in their lives. And here's the reason. It's not because God isn't faithful. It's because some of us have simply lacked faithfulness on our part. Once again, the geyser goes off every 92 minutes, whether we're there or we're in the gift shop. So the question is, am I going to be there to experience the faithfulness or am I not going to be there and and not experience the faithfulness? In fact, in the book of Proverbs, it says this. It says, honor the Lord by giving him the first part of all your income. That's tithing. And he will fill your barns with wheat and barley and overflow your wine vats with the finest wines. Once again, that's very picturesque. Uh, in that culture of a person who was really, really blessed. Once again, the only way to experience God's faithfulness is for us to be faithful. You see, I can tell you stories and show you pictures of, of old faithful, but you know what? If you really want to experience it, you've got to see it for yourself. By the way, on, on this subject, let me just say, on your connection card, uh, there's an opportunity for you to sign up for a financial seminar that we're doing on the 31st of January, which is just about two weeks away. And I really want to encourage you to sign up for that. And by the way, it's not just like a big thing about giving. This is about really every area uh, of finances. And we've got our guys who are trained to be able to teach this stuff. And it is so huge. This has helped hundreds of people uh, in in our church. And I believe it can really have a huge impact in your life because we're not going to talk about uh, budgeting. We're going to talk about eliminating debt. We're going to talk about uh, planning for the future. We're going to talk about saving. We're going to talk about all of that kind of stuff. And listen, now at the beginning of the year, this is the time to say, hey, how can I put this, you know, put my financial world in, in a position to where uh, this year is going to be better than last year? And that's 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 very possible. And so I want to encourage you to be part of that, because once again, for us to be able to experience God's faithfulness, we have to be faithful as well. Now, Paul goes on. Not only does God want me to be committed to faithfulness, God wants me to be to com- me to be committed to spiritual growth. And that's what we see starting in verse 14. He says this. He says, remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words for no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present, present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, for their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. If you pause there and give me your attention, as I mentioned, God wants us to be committed to spiritual growth. Now, here's the thing that's amazing. It's really all about what we're committed to, or not committed to, because just even being there isn't really enough. It's, it's what we decide to put our effort and energy 
in, in our commitment into. Now, I've told you guys in the past that I wasn't uh, much of a student in high school, and that's why it took me five years to graduate uh, from high school. But here's the thing. Here's part of the story I don't tell a lot, and that is that while I was failing some of my classes, I was getting straight A's in all of my music classes. And now, and this is the part that was weird, is that like I would sit in my English class, and I was failing English. But my, that, the next hour, it was fifth, the fifth period was uh, English, sixth period was music theory, and when I was in music theory too, I was actually teaching the class as, as a senior. Now you say, well, now how exactly does that work? Well, the teacher had all this other stuff that he was interested in, and he knew that um, I, I you know, was very serious about music, and I, he, I had been in his music theory one class, and so music theory two and music theory one were essentially, we were all kind of lumped together, and so he, he would say to me, he would say, Bob, I've got papers to grade, just teach them something basic about, you know, chords and, and music theory. And so that's kind of how, and, that, and, that, and that's what would happen. So, and I want you to think about this. One class, I'm totally failing. I've got like a 20%, you know, no chance. I mean, there's, there's only two words that really matter, and that's summer school, all right, for some. And then the other class, I'm teaching. Now, how exactly does that take place? All because of commitment. I was committed to one and I wasn't committed to the other. And that's why I was growing exponentially in the one and I was failing in the other. You see, so if I want to experience growth in any area of my life, listen, there has to be commitment. Not just talk, not just good intentions, but real commitment and hard work. You see, and this is especially true when it comes to spiritual growth. Because here's the thing that's interesting about spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is different than natural growth. Like, you know, my daughter doesn't really think about growing, uh, which you wouldn't know because people see her and think that she's four. And, you know, like I had someone say to me, like, Mia's what, like three, four? And I'm like, Mia has yet to turn two. Uh, And they will, you know, because she's growing. But I can tell you this, my daughter doesn't really think about growing. She just grows. Why? Because it's just, it's natural when, you know, she eats healthy and all that stuff. But, you know, the thing is, spiritual growth is different. Spiritual growth doesn't just happen. Spiritual growth happens when we're intentional about growing. And that's why I'm going to read this to you from the King. I read to you out of the New King James. I'll read to you out of the King James, verse 15. That's, he says this, not be diligent, but he says, Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. You see, spiritual growth takes diligent study and the application of what we learn. Diligent study is about reading the Bible and applying it to our life, not just having the knowledge, but it's about applying the knowledge of the scriptures in our lives. Jesus would say it this way. He says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock and the rains descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them. He'll be like a foolish man who built his house on sand and the rains descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. Did you notice something? I think there's something people miss in this passage that Jesus says. You see, sometimes we think that if I do what Jesus is saying, that the rains won't come, there's not going to be, you know, the, the rains won't descend, the floods won't come, the winds won't blow. But you know what he says? Jesus says that the rains come to the person who hears the word and doesn't. 
the, the wind blows and to the person who hears the word and, and, and does it and the person who hears the word and doesn't do it. The issue is what happens to the person. Difficulty comes into everybody's life. But you know what takes place in a person's life when they're committed and do the things that Jesus is telling them to do? Here's what happens. One is they are able to stand because they're founded on the rock. The other, you know what takes place? They fall because they heard, but they didn't do what it was that was being said. And that's why Paul writes to Timothy and he says, study to show yourself approved. What is studying to show yourself approved? What kind of life does that produce? I believe it produces three important qualities in our lives. The first is this, if you're taking notes. It produces someone who is approved by God. Someone who's approved. Now, if you've bought a house in your life, then you know what it is to be approved for a loan. You know what that is, what approval is. That a lender believed you to be trustworthy based on your credit score, your income to debt ratio, and a bunch of other things. And they said, you know, based on all of this and your history, we believe that you're going to be faithful, and that's why we're approving you. But see, being approved by God is something a little bit different. It means that you've been faithful to God. It means that you're committed to growing in your relationship with God. And where does that begin? That begins by getting, it, getting God's word into your heart and into your mind. Now, here's a real practical way. Can I just encourage you in this? I believe one of the most important things you can do is buy a Bible of your own. So what are you saying? I'm saying you go to the store and you buy a Bible of your own. Now, if you re- this is what I would really encourage you to do. I would encourage you to buy an expensive Bible of your own because I'm pretty sure that if you spend like 100 bucks on a Bible, you're going to read it. Because if you're like me, you're going to say, man, I spent all this money. I'm going to get my money's worth out of it for sure. And, uh, and, and I'm telling you, you say, well, you know, but I like the notes that you give. I, you know, you got all the verses on here. Listen, let me tell you why we do these notes. One, because I, I believe that there's something that happens in a person's life when they put pen to paper. When you write stuff down, it, it gets, you know, lodged into your mind and you won't forget it. But this isn't meant to replace you having your own Bible. This is meant to just be a supplement so that you can hang on to this and maybe put it in a folder or something. And maybe you three, I know people who three hole punch them and, and keep them so that when they go back, they say, man, there, there's something, some passage somewhere. And I think it was in this message that you're able to now go back and say, now you've got an outline of the message that was taught. And as you reread it, now you're able to say, oh, I got it. And then it gets even further into your heart and further uh, into into your mind. But listen, the key is, is that when you come here, you come here and you say, I've got the notes, that's great, and I've got a pen that they even give me. But I would even encourage you to say, hey, bring a journal with you or a notepad. Bring your Bible. And, and if there's a passage that gets read, that you say, man, I need to know that. That passage in Matthew 7, which says about that person who hears the word and doesn't, that person who hears the word and doesn't do it, I need to underline that. So I never forget where that is. That study to show yourself approved, I need to underline that. I need to put a star by it so that I, I, I never forget it. But listen, if you want to be approved by God, that's the first place that it starts, by studying God's Word. The second thing that studying and applying the Bible produces is not just someone who's approved by God. It produces someone who is not ashamed. That's why he says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed. You don't need to be ashamed. What, is, what causes shame? Here's really what it comes down to. Shame is caused by doing the wrong thing and getting caught. That, I mean, you know, we can kind of strip all the other stuff away. It's doing the wrong thing and getting caught. In fact, in, in the outline that we gave you in Genesis 2.25, here's what it says. God brings, uh, the, the, creates the first man and creates the first woman. 
brings them together, and then here's what, he, here's what it says. The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Why? Because this first marriage is something that was ordained by God. It's God brought these two people together. Now, now as they came together in this first, you know, quote-unquote marriage ceremony, there's no reason to feel ashamed because what they're doing is right and holy and good. But you know what happens next, and if you've read this part of the Bible, you know what happens next as you turn the page to Genesis chapter 3. Man falls into sin, and then the shame begins to set in, and the nakedness that now had caused them no shame starts to cause them shame. And look at the next passage that we put there in Genesis chapter 3. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He asked. And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. You see what takes place? Shame sets in when we do something that's wrong and then get caught. Not when we're doing the right thing. Now, what I, I, still, I read this passage and I still can't understand and forgive me, but it's like, you've got this guy and his wife, they're living in paradise, okay? They're living in paradise, they're both naked, and the only thing they can think of is picking fruit. It's like, what do you want to do? I don't know, let's pick fruit. I mean, can you think of anything else to do, maybe, you know, living in paradise and you're not wearing any clothes? Maybe, you know, and you're married. Uh, makes no sense to me. But here's what happens. The shame comes into the picture when we sin and get caught. Now, I say I don't understand, and I do. Last Sunday, I'm driving to church, and uh, if you were here, I was having all kinds of, like, throat problems and um, all of that, and so I, I was running a bit late, and so I'm really very motivated to get here because I'm, I'm, running, I'm running a few minutes late, and um, I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out, I get off the highway, and I am just gunning it down this, down this like, open stretch of road. So you can imagine my surprise when the cop came out of nowhere and just, you know. And so I pull over and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. Now, I can see the school from where I'm parked. And I'm like, oh, Lord. So the cop stops me and he says, sir, do you know why I stopped you? Now, by the way, if you want to annoy a cop, tell him, no, I don't know why you stopped me. You know, I was going 80 miles over the speed limit. I have no idea. You know, just be honest. And I said, uh, sir, I know I was speeding. But, and I know you don't like excuses, but I've got to tell you something. I am a pastor, and I am late for church. And, I mean, I, I will tell you this. this is the fir- that's the first time I've ever made a cop laugh, uh, like in these situations. But he just started to laugh. And he says, uh, he says well, <laughs> well, you got your license and your registration, so I give him all my stuff. And he says, uh, all right, hang on. I'll be right back. He's just your right address. Yeah, yeah, all that. <clears throat> and so he comes back a minute later. Now, mind you, it, it probably took him like a minute. I'm thinking it was like an hour because I'm just I'm I'm late. And um, and, I, and so he comes back and and uh, and I said, officer, I'm so embarrassed by this. And I'm, I'm just really running late. And and he says uh, he gives it back to me. And he says, all right, go to church. Slow down. Have a nice day. And I'm like, God bless you, sir. You know, and I'm this whole thing, you know, and it's like now here's the thing. Now I'm driving this morning. I get to the same patch of road, and, I'm, and it's 30 miles an hour. And I was he caught me doing 55 and a 30. And uh, the thing was that he like explained to me like, is this almost like a, this would have been like a 300 dollar ticket? And but we're gonna just kind of let it go. And, this, and I'm like, God bless you, sir. Uh, and and so 
I get to that stretch of road. Let me tell you what I did. I put it on cruise control for 30, exactly, maybe even 29, you know, and I'm driving through. And let me tell you what I felt. No shame driving 29 miles an hour through there because there's, there's no shame when you're doing the right thing. There's only shame because you know how it is when you get pulled over. Uh, and I was getting, I was pulled over and, and, and then, you know, people are driving by and, and, you know, they slow down. That drives me so crazy. And then you got little kids in the back. Look, mommy, what's wrong with the man? You know, and it's just like, it just drives me crazy. And, and, and you got this whole thing going on. Because that's what happens. We do the wrong thing. We get caught. Shame sets in. We do the right thing. There's no sense of shame. And that's what studying God's word does. Studying God's word allows me to know what is the right thing to do. And when I do the right thing, I don't have to be ashamed. That's why Psalm 119 verse 11 says, it says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Here's the third thing that studying God's word does. Studying and applying God's word, that it promotes someone who rightly divides the word. That's what it says in, in, at the end of verse 15. It says, study to show yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. What does that mean? That word rightly divides. That word rightly divides is, a, is actually a Greek phrase that means this. It means to cut straight, to cut straight. Not to cut crooked or to cut angled or to cut the way you want it, but it cuts it straight. Now, you want to think about it this way. You ever have this? It's like maybe when you were a kid or maybe this was last week. Um, you know, maybe you and your wife or your family or whatever. There's like one piece of cake left. There's one piece of cake, and then you say, well, let's split it. You say, all right, let's split it. And you know that your fork works faster than the other person. And they say, well, all right, let's split it. And you go to the, no, 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 no. Let's cut it so that you have your half and I'll have my half. You say, well, okay. And now, now, this is the way it should work, by the way, if you don't have this. Now, the way it should work is one person cuts, but after the other person cuts, the person who didn't cut gets to choose the piece that they want. But, and so if that's the way it works, now here's what you would do. I'm telling you, you would cut that piece of cake with surgeon-like precision, knowing that it's like, I'm going to cut this cake and this other person is going to have to choose. I am going to make sure it's exactly 50% on each side. That's what it's talking about when he says he's going to, you cut straight the word of truth. You see, someone who doesn't cut straight the word of truth is someone who kind of is, is crooked in how they deal with the Bible. And so they kind of twist the Bible and bend the Bible to say what it is that they want it to say. And what can happen is this. And we can think, oh, yeah, you know, there's those teachers or those preachers or those guys on TV that say that. But you know that this can happen even in our lives personally. When I was uh, when I, I had a student when I was in, uh, in Bible teaching Bible college that came up to me and asked me to officiate her wedding. And um, I said, you know, maybe, what, what's the date, you know? And they said, oh, we're getting married in three weeks or something. And I asked if she had already gone through premarital counseling. And she said no, because they wanted to get married quickly. And I said, all right. I said, well, you know, why don't you wait a month or two and go through premarital and invest in your relationship? And then, um, you know, we can talk about, about doing your wedding. And she says, you know, um, you know, we know that this is of God. You know, we started dating eight weeks ago, and we just know that God has put us together. And, and, then, and then this is where she dropped, like, and, and I thought that that was going to be the end. And she, then she dropped the bomb on me. Now, I put the verse in here because, you know, this is the verse she gave me. Um, because she says, because, you know, the Bible says it's better to marry than to burn with lust. That's the verse, all right? And, uh, I mean, you, you have to understand my next, the, my next 
thing that I said. I mean, I was much younger. I'm a little bit more diplomatic than I was back then. But I was like 24, 25 years old uh, when I was teaching uh, at college. And, and so I said to her, I said, so based on that verse, you want to get married because you're horny? Is that right? And, uh, and I mean, she was really taken back by that. And she's like, no, no, pastor, we love each other. That's, that's why we want to get married. You know, it's, it's not just that we, we really love each other. I said, well, the next verse in your outline, I said, well, do you know the Bible says this, that love is patient? And she says, where does it say that? I don't know that verse. And I'm like, yeah, I, I could have told you that. Um, and I said, well, it's actually, you know, and I said it's in, in the book of, of 1 Corinthians 13. And she was very upset that that verse was in the Bible. And she still ended up getting married anyway. Um, but here's the problem. The problem is, and this is what's, what can happen so easily in your life and in mine. And that is there's something that we want to do. And here's what we do. We start combing the pages of the Bible trying to find a verse that kind of means that. Well, if you kind of look at it that way, maybe that's what it says. And, you know, uh, and, and, you know, you start playing like Bible roulette. You know, you, I'm going to whatever the Bible says, um, you know, I'm going to do. Right. And then, you know, like the guy who played Bible roulette, he opened up the Bible and it said, you know, Judas went and hung himself. I don't like well, then what does it say? And then it says, Jesus said, go and do likewise. Then he changed it again. Then it says, you know, what you do, do quickly. You know, it's like, well, what do I do now? Apparently God wants me to hang myself or something. Um, you know, well, the thing is this. Now, the problem is this. How do we cut straight? How do we cut straight with these two verses? That one says it's better to marry than to burn with lust. And the other says that love is patient. How do we cut straight the word of truth? Here's how we, how we cut straight. We have to understand the context. The context of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is where that uh, better to marry than to burn with lust passage is all about, is about the, the, the questions that the Corinthian church had sent to Paul to say, Paul, we have these questions. Can you answer them? And so in chapter 7, the question that they have is about marriage. And in fact, the question is really about, um, they're asking, Paul, we know that you aren't married. You live a celibate life. You've decided to not get married. Do you think that that's the best way to live? And so that's what, how Paul begins to answer the question. Now Paul answers that question, and this is what he says. He says, um, the great thing about not being married is that you can commit your life wholly to serving the Lord. But if you have the desire to be married, then get married. You know why? Because it's better to marry than to burn with lust when the reason that you're, being sing- that you're staying single is for the purpose of serving the Lord when you can get married and still serve the Lord, probably not to the same level of, in, of intensity at times because you're going to have to give time uh, for your wife and for your family. But it's great. The Bible says it's great if you do get married. The Bible says it's great if you don't get married. But th- that's not really the issue. Now, you see how that kind of paints the context a little bit more? That it's not just, well, let me just pull this verse out of the hat. Well, hey, the Bible says that, so now I'm going to go make a very unwise decision. And that's what cutting straight is all about. That's what rightly dividing the word of truth is all about. It's about understanding the context. And sometimes what will happen is, is that we'll make poor decisions all because we haven't rightly divided the word. Instead, we pull a verse out of context and we say, this is God's will for me. We say, well, slow down. Maybe it's not. And that's why we need to get into an environment that says, hey, here, what, what exactly do I need to do? How do I grow in this? And that's why uh, in your program we put this catalog for all of our growth groups, uh, as you know, our groups semester is starting in the month of February and you have all of these different groups to choose from, all that are going to tell us, <coughs> pardon me, <clears throat> that are going to give us the opportunity as we grow in them to, t- to show us one thing. How do we rightly divide? 
the word of truth? How do we grow in understanding the application of God's word for the purpose of us being able to know what it is that God wants us to do? So let me encourage you in this. We have a couple minutes left. I want to encourage you just as, as we continue that you make a decision that says, you know what? What, what day is best? Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, all of these different uh, days. You have all these days to, 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 have an opp- to have an opportunity to grow in your faith. You say, well, I don't know. I, I don't know what day works. I'm telling you that every day that ends in Y, there's an opportunity here for you to sign up for a group. And so it's, uh, it's to say, you know what? Really what it comes down to is, am I committed or am I not committed? Well, Paul goes on in this last section where he says that God wants me to be committed to obedience. And that's where verse 19 says. It says, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be a vessel of honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. You see, in our house, just like yours, here's what I know, is that there are some vessels. There's like the fine china that you use when people come over and you say, this is a really, really special dinner. But then there's also vessels that are not for honor. Those are the things that you kind of keep behind the door. Your toilet bowl, for example. You know, when someone comes over to your house and you're going to you honor them, you know, there's like an area of the couch that I sit on that I like. And uh, if I'm going to honor someone, say, hey, sit on that. That's like the most comfortable spot on the, on the sofa and you can sit there. Or, now that would be a, a position of honor. Or I could say, you know, we don't really have a spot for you, but there is a chair in this house that doesn't move. Uh, it's bolted to the floor, the toilet. You can sit on there. Now, here's what we know. That that air, that's not something of honor. We would actually say that that's, an area uh, that's a vessel of dishonor. Why? Because it's not something that you highlight. It's something that you keep behind a closed door. And the thing is this, is that in your life and in mine, we have the opportunity to say, am I going to be, do I want to be a vessel of honor or do I want to be a vessel of dishonor? And the amazing thing is, is that the difference between being a vessel of honor and dishonor is our decision as to how closely we're going to obey God or not. You see, that's why he says that um, that we're this vessel that's sanctified and useful for the master. Now, what does that word sanctified mean? That's like, a, that's like an old church term. That term is, simply means this. Sanctified is the process of making something holy. The process of making something holy. The process of taking something that is dishonor and then through this process of separating it for a holy and special purpose. In the book of Second John, This is what he writes. He says, and this is love that we walk in obedience to his command. As you've heard from the beginning, his command is that you walk in love. Now, isn't that interesting that God wants us to be sanctified, that is to make us holy and to be useful, to have a particular purpose. But that comes through obedience. And this opportunity that we have is this is this is love that we walk in obedience that we walk in love and that we walk in love and walk in obedience. That those are interchangeable terms. And so what is God saying? What is God, what is John showing us that we can tell God that we love him, but to show God that we love him involves obeying him. How do we obey God? Listen, it's real simple. We read what the scriptures have to say and then we do it. 
So you read what the scriptures have to say, and it says that every believer should be baptized. I mean, that's not a hard command. That's just simply an act of obedience and saying, yes, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a decision to go into the water and be baptized. That's a simple command. The Bible says that we should serve him, that we should use our gifts and talents to serve him, that we have that opportunity to do that. And then, you know, there's so many other things that we grow in our faith and, and all of that. And so um, the, the issue is this. The issue is, are we going to take what it is that, that we've learned, what it is that we hear, and are we going to implement it? Because the implementation of what we hear is going to show us the level that which we are committed or not committed. So I'm going to encourage you to take out your connection card, which I know you have handy. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I know in a message like this, you say that this is an opportunity now for us to, to say, hey, I want to take a step of commitment. And there's, we gave you several suggestions for next steps on the back and the seminar that we're doing and, and, and whatever the case. And, but here's what I want to encourage you to do. What's the step that God wants you to take that's going to increase your commitment to him? Is it to get into a group? Is it to be faithful in giving? Is it to be baptized? To say, hey, you know what? I'm going to buy a Bible of my own and start reading it and commit myself to reading it. Um, you know, maybe read through the Bible in a year or read through the New Testament or, or whatever the case. Because here's what I know is that when we commit to something, that the level of commitment that we have will make all of the difference as to what takes place. And that's my hope and prayer for you, that we would make a commitment that makes a difference in our lives to become the people that God wants us to be. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for this opportunity, and I just pray and I ask that, God, you would work in us, work through us, God, help us to be the people who are committed to serving and following you. In Jesus' name, amen.